Uh, I was born in a small town called Masjid Suleiman in southern Iran. I was born in Syria. I was born in Hamburg, Germany. I was born in Congo. I was born in Tanzania in a refugee camp. I was born in Singapore. Guatemala City. I'm from Ireland. I was born in Thailand refugee camp. I was camp. born in Mumbai. India. I was born in Vientiane, Laos. I was born in England. I was born in Costa Rica. Welcome to Many Roads to Hear, bringing the voices of immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers to a national conversation about migration and identity. I'm your host, Caitlin Dwyer. Today, we hear the story of Johanna Amani, who suffered through a violent home life after being separated from her mother. A warning, this episode contains descriptions of sexual abuse and domestic violence. But as Johanna recounts, seeing her mother again remained a constant source of hope. Today, she tells the story of a dramatic rescue by her determined mother and what she's learned about what's possible. Stephanie Valance brings us Johanna's story. It was 2010, and Johanna Amani was 10 years old. It was the middle of the night, and she sped through the Congo on the back of a stranger's motorcycle with her mother and younger sister. While crossing the border into Rwanda, Johanna's mother looked back at her two young daughters. My mom told me and my sister, say goodbye to all the programs. That's what she told us, I remember that. She told us, look through the mirror and say goodbye to all your problems. And uh, me and my sister were like, what's happening? But we did it. The three were escaping terror in the Congo, but not the genocide that caused many others to seek safety in neighboring countries. Instead, their mother was rescuing Johanna and her sister from their father. The city we lived in was called Goma. My dad was a very successful man. He was a politician. My mother w- would stay home. And my mom had gone to school, and she had gotten a, deg- a degree in business and a, d- a degree in uh, French. And so she, before getting married to my dad, she had her own life where she owned her own business. She would travel to Dubai and other countries, go back to Congo and sell those, uh, she would sell clothes, shoes, stuff like that. She was really a professional businesswoman until she got married. And uh, the culture, in our culture, it's considered normal that once you get married as a woman, all the degrees, everything you've worked for needs to stop. And then now you have to tend to the husband. They have to provide for everything. And so my mom had, to, uh, had, de- had degrees. Had, she had to pull them in a folder somewhere and, like, hide them. Like, they are never to be seen again. Like, they were useless. Became, started becoming abusive. My uh, my mom had to leave, and so I grew up with my dad, me, uh, me and my younger sister. And so my dad got a stepmother, 
And then we lived with her. She was abusive to me and my sister. Uh, but also my dad was abusive to her. And so it got to a point where, like, it wasn't a stable childhood anymore. After her parents divorced, Johanna's mother was not allowed to see her daughters. The loss of her children devastated her. Uh, she tried to get her life back together, but she couldn't because uh, she she used, she owned her own business. She uh, had a good reputation. But when she got married, a few years passed, and no one recognized her as the same woman as she was before. So once she left the marriage uh, and my dad divorced her, it was a really long process. But once the divorce went through, uh, my mom had a really hard time going back to the lady she was. She tried going back to her parents, but she is the eldest of 11 more kids. And so it's hard for a married woman to go back to her parents' house and expect their support. Her mother went to court to appeal for custody of the girls. But because of the political influence of Johanna's father, she was unsuccessful. That did not stop her from seeking out her daughters wherever she could. She would come, sometimes speak in school and try to visit us, come to a class or something. That, But my dad would find out because it's a private school, so you depend on what your, the parent pays you. And so the teachers would be like, oh, this woman came to visit your kids today. And when I would find out, my dad would try and locate her and beat her, you know, physical abuse. And uh, this went on for, like, school. we would transfer from school to school because my dad would think, oh, she's coming to the school, so let me transfer you. My mom would just keep coming to visit us. I remember one of my birthdays. My birthday is on March 8th, which is on International Women's Day. And in Congo, it's a really huge celebration because women would wear their traditional uh, clothes and they would cook food, dance. It would just be an amazing, happy day. But for me, uh, that day in Congo, I remember me and my sister had gone to school. And my mom, I don't know how she did it, but it was during class. No one was outside. Um, She talked to one of my teachers who was a really good teacher. I remember him. And he allowed me and my sister to sneak out of class and go talk to my mom. And we went and she had made some really good food for us. And she came with some of the traditional clothes for, for Congolese women. And she wrapped one around my um, my waist. And, I mean, it was the happiest moment I remember having in my childhood, despite what was happening at home. At home, Johanna both witnessed and suffered from abuse. I really have bad memories of it. It would be mostly um, physical abuse. Uh, he would beat her in front of us, in front of my stepsisters, it would be anywhere, anytime, no shame or no regard of who's watching. And this did not just happen to my stepmom, but like also to my mom. And uh, sometimes also to us. I remember um, the stress was getting into my stepmom and she also started becoming abusive to us, which would make sense. So we would have like uh, like our favorite soap operas playing on TV. And it's time to watch them, but she said, oh, go sit over there close to the TV. I don't know if he was... That's what she wanted, or if, if on purpose, or I have no idea why. But that started affecting my eyesight really bad, and it got to a point where I couldn't see as well as I used to. Uh, recently, I had an eye appointment, and I went to see the eye doctor, and uh, she told me that they actually cannot measure my my prescription. So there's a limit to how to the amount they can measure. And so mine is past that. So there's no way. And my um, that's how bad my eyesight is. I remember when it came to the U.S. And because when it came to the U.S., you have to do the physical checkup. I check up dental, everything. And they told me that if I delayed getting glasses, I didn't get my first glasses in the U.S., but when I got my glasses, if I had delayed it, my eyesight would have, I would be blind right now. Johanna tried to tell her father about her vision issues, 
she still remembers his response. I was eight or nine, and I remember this one morning my dad was home. It was a weekend, and I went to him and was like, Dad, I need to tell, can I tell you something? And he he really had a bad hangover. Uh, he was drunk the night before when he came home and beat my mom. But I was really scared of talking to him that night, so I, was, I waited for the morning. And that morning he was standing by the cabinet to get some medicine. I'm not sure I can't imagine, but that's where he was because we had, like, a cabinet that was full of, uh, like, ten, um, Panadol and some medicines that you could take, and he was standing there, and he had his towel on. It was really early in the morning, and I remember I was like, can I tell you something? And I, the clo- I moved to, closer to him, and I just remember him grabbing me. He was really tall. He's, like, six foot or something. He was tall. He uh, grabbed me with one of his hands, told me not to disturb me and like threw me back on the floor. It was a really scary thing that happened to me at that time. Also, I remember one day my dad decided to bring his younger brother from the village to come live with us because he was a really huge compound and uh, we had a houseboy but he was a really house so it was hard for him to maintain it so my dad thought that if you bring uh, his younger brother here to the house he can help like with the cleaning of the house and um, maintaining it. I remember his face and um, he was nice at first and after he would stay in a separate part of the compound different building where my dad wanted him to stay there so he can make make sure that everything is okay. Sometimes he would invite me uh, to go to uh, his room, give me biscuits, stuff like that. And then he started with touching me, stuff like that, and led to sexual abuse. And at this time, I was six. I remember this. I didn't understand what was happening. I couldn't tell if it was something normal that happens or what. My uncle uh, sexually abused me for... About for four years until I was ten, that when we left uh, Congo, I told my stepmother about it. She never did anything. I remember. Uh, I told her whenever he invites me to go to his part of the house, he does this and this to me. Um, my stepmother really she ignored me. I, I got so scared that every time I would see him talking to my younger sister, I would step in and try and change the conversation. Or if he's trying to take my, my, my younger sister to that part of the house, I, uh, let me go with you, right? So like, I let whatever will happen happen to me and not my younger sister. Uh, I didn't I want to protect my sister. I didn't want anything to happen to her. There is a culture expectation. It's that... Despite what rich or poor home you come from, whatever happens in the family stays in your family. You can tell a friend, you can tell a teacher, you can tell anyone. And so I decided to uh, to keep it to myself. When I go to school, yeah, it's a good day. I go to school, come back home. Whatever happens home stays at home. I don't remember a part of it being a happy childhood. It would either be um, li- we're leaving home to go to school and pretending that everything is fine, going back home and... Uh, same form of uh, abuse. Yeah, so I don't remember having a break from those two types of life. Johanna lived with constant fear and dread as a child. 
But in the rare moments she saw her mother, she felt hope. So all this would happen, but I would keep it to myself, except sometimes, some, some, some days we would go to church, and my mom knew the church we were going to, and she would come when the church service is over. She would come and uh, quickly see us and be like, I mean, that gave me hope, at least, knowing that uh, I'm going off to all this, but at least my mom is fine, my younger sister is fine. Johanna's father and stepmother eventually had three more daughters. Johanna and her sister Lisa were often tasked with caring for their younger siblings. One night, as the girls were babysitting their sisters, they heard a knock. I remember someone was knocking at the gate, and I went to look to uh, go open the gate. I saw my mom there. She asked me, is anyone home? I said no, and she asked me and my sister to go with her. Uh, I was like, but I'm watching other, the others. And she's like, come with me, come with me. I went back and called my sister, and we we got on the motorcycle. We hopped onto the bike. Uh, we we closed the gate so they can stay inside. The, the younger kids can stay inside, and we got on the bike. My I, my mom sat in the back, and she put me and my sister in the middle between her and the bike man. And I don't remember what was happening, but we started. We um we were going somewhere. I didn't know where, but. We were going somewhere. It was really fast. Um, my mom, I would feel like my mom is panicking about something. The bike uh, was going really fast. And we didn't have any clothes with us. We didn't take any food with us. We didn't, my mom didn't have anything except her purse. She didn't have nothing. As they sped through the darkness toward Rwanda, Johanna and her sister had little time to process what was happening. They had no idea they were leaving the Congo for the last time. As they boarded a bus and crossed the border, their mother reassured them that the terrors they had known were vanishing behind them. That night, they reached the welcoming home of a friend, but they had yet to find safety. We went to someone's house where it was. It looked like a really happy home. They had their own kids. It was wife and husband, and they served us really nice food. At that time, we had no idea what's happening. Everything was going by so fast. Then we were in someone's house. They were giving us food. My mom was there, panicking. They told us that we were going to stay at their house that night. And they set aside on, in the living room um, some blankets and stuff where we could sleep. And my mom, that night before we went to bed, she told us not to worry. Everything will be fine. The day after, the, so the following morning when we woke up, my mom told me that she had to go back to Congo to get money and to get her clothes, her belongings. We, we didn't mind, okay. And we stayed home, we played with the other kids that were there. Without her mother in a stranger's house far from home, Johanna didn't feel fear. She felt relief. Oh, at least now no one is going to beat me here, no one is going to yell at me. I don't have to babysit anyone, I don't have to wash anyone's diaper, so this is fine by me. I felt safe. It was really close to the border because my mom could go and come back the same day, go back to Kunga and come back. And she went that morning. When she came back, she was in terrible condition. Her clothes were ripped off. Uh, She was, like, bleeding everywhere. And uh, she told us that... She didn't tell us, actually, but when she got to that place where we were staying, uh, she had to go clean up. But I overheard her telling that on her way back, she was attacked by the border because my dad has sent men who were just like uh, were actual police officers who were at the border 
watching out for my mom, like, oh, she might cross the border, so if you see her, beat her or kill her. She was, she got beat up in front of other people, but no one did anything, no one knew what was happening. I don't know how, but she managed to escape, and that's why she gone home on foot from the border to the house. And from there, I told her it's not safe to stay there anymore. While in Rwanda, Johanna's mother was in touch with a friend from college who had been sending her money. He offered them a safer place to stay with his family in Kenya. My dad was still a politician, and he's still, Kenya is still in Africa, and it's not too far from Congo, so he can get to us whenever he wants. And so we lived in Kenya, in Nairobi, Kenya, but we isolated ourselves from the other Congolese communities because we knew that word can get out that, oh, this, this family oh, from this part of Congo lives here in Kenya, this, blah, blah. So we didn't live in camps. We lived in the city. And that, that was a way of protecting ourselves. Things didn't, were not so good. My mom struggled getting a job. Medically, we would get sick. Stuff. We, we, there's no health insurance. We'd have to struggle going to the hospital, paying for ourselves. And when we got to Kenya, because I didn't know any English or Swahili, I had to start the whole school year again. I had to start first grade. I was 11. I was turning 12. So I had to start all over again. It was really frustrating for me. It was hard because then I had been going to school in Congo where I was really smart. I knew my classes. I knew my work, everything. When I go to Kenya, I become a first grader and I started failing in school. I would have some triggers of what would happen because uh, I was traumatized. Yeah, I would get triggers and everything changed for me. I started getting uh, stomach ulcers. That's when my eyesight was was really changing, becoming terrible. And that's when I got my first eyeglasses when I went to Kenya. It was a really long process, but there was a lot of things happened. I was hopeless. If we stay here in Kenya, after I finish eighth grade, I'm going to start working and don't even think about school, about college and stuff like that. And um, lucky for me, the year I finished my seventh grade and I was uh, during the break that we had to go back to school and start eighth grade, that's when... It was that year where we came to the U.S., which I didn't have to go back to eighth grade and graduate. I was so happy or relieved. Johanna and her family lived as refugees in Nairobi for six years. During that time, her mother sought asylum with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. In 2016, their request was finally approved. I remember when we were working with the U.N. and they were asking us if there's a specific state or place we want to go to the U.S., my mom, when we were all specific, we don't want to go somewhere where there's a big population of Congolese people because you were scared that word might get out there in the U.S. or we live somewhere specifically. And so they chose, chose Portland, Oregon for us. We never heard of that place, Oregon, Portland, no. As long as it's somewhere where we're going that's safe, that ensures our future, that we're going to be better, we don't care. Johanna, her sister Lisa, and her mother landed in Portland, Oregon on September 22, 2016, where Johanna enrolled as a freshman in high school. When we came to the U.S. and I realized that when I got in high school is that I have to make a career choice of what I want to start when I go to college because there's actually hope for me that I can go to college because of my GPA and scholarships that are available. I was I want okay I want to take good advantage of the situation and make sure I get a good degree in something that isn't expected of me because I, in Congo women are expected to be doctors or teachers. That's okay, but I want to do something different because I have the opportunity that I wouldn't have if I was still back home. 
So I won't take advantage of it. So um, my teacher, Mr. Kuhlman, uh, one day we were in class and um, that's when the Roosevelt construction was happening. And we were looking over the window and we were talking about the construction. And he, he said to class, uh, did you guys know that my wife built the new seasons on Lombard? And I was like, how is that even possible? How Your wife, she's a female, how? I mean, I had all this question, like, women can do that? And um, he, he told me that um, that his wife is a civil structural engineer and that she works for a firm, stuff like that. I got really interested. A few weeks later, Johanna job shadowed Mr. Coleman's wife at her engineering firm. While she was there, she was introduced to architectural interior design. Though she had seen her mother's struggle and strength, the idea that a woman could be in a similar field motivated her. I want to challenge the perspective that women should only do feminine stuff. I want to do like something more, more uh, different and challenging that most people don't think I would do. And so architecture was some was sounded more masculine to me. Like this is perfect because it's a combination of masculine and feminine. I want to challenge it because uh, my mom would still be a professional businesswoman if she didn't get married. She would still even be even higher. Her her uh, business would be better right now. If she never got married, nothing would have changed. But because of the culture that she was in and grew up in, it tells her that once you get married, you're only supposed to serve the man and not everything you've done is basically becomes useless. And so I feel like now I have the chance to challenge that because then it's not like a constant reminder. I'm no longer in Congo. I'm not under the same culture. And I don't want it to keep influencing me wherever I go. I've seen other African girls here in Oregon and in the U.S., and I see the the things they do. It, they're not bad, but it's like some girls are 17 and they're already pregnant or they're already married or they graduated from high school with bad GPAs and they just stay home. They never go to college. They just stay home and work or they work at McDonald's. They do jobs that they, they can do more, but it's just that there is that on the back of the head is that there's this culture expectation for me that I can't do more because of where I'm from. But for me, I feel like, let me let me do let me try do something different and see how it works out. And uh, ever since I had that perspective, um, I've been I I became more interested in doing more challenging myself. Johanna Amani is a sophomore at University of Oregon, where she studies international development and legal studies. She is determined to use her education as a means to protect her mom and sister. It's just my type of determination is what has gotten me this far, because I'm, I want to make sure I'm determined enough so that my, my family and I can never go back to the situation where we were in Kenya or Congo, where my mom was so sick, she couldn't go to the hospital sometimes, or where we were, we were so poor, sometimes we go to bed with no food. I want to, that never happens again. So I want to make sure I become as much as educated as I can. So I can use those, that type of, because one thing I believe in is education. Everyone should have opportunity, uh, the opportunity, not just good, but quality education. And I have the opportunity for that here in the U.S. So I want to take advantage of that. But also, I want to make sure that you never go back there. It gets to a point where when we think of the past, we're like, no, it's not even worth thinking about because it was way in the past. That's what I want for my family. And also for my younger sister, 
um, my stepsisters who are back home. I don't know how to get to reach them, but I'm doing all this for them too. Many Roads to Here is a production of The Immigrant Story in collaboration with Portland Radio Project. This episode was written by Stephanie Valance and Emily Denny. Rick March edited the audio, assisted by Gordon Graham. The original interview was conducted in spring of 2019 by Juliana Robidoux. Our executive producer is the unsinkable Sankaraman. For more stories, visit theimmigrantstory.org or prp.fm, or find us wherever you download your podcasts.